0: It's actually kind of surprising because last week I confessed my hypocrisy and then called all of you hypocrites, and yet here you are. So <laughs> glad you're back. Thank you. If you've got a Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 12. We've been uh, spending a little bit of time going through the gospel of Luke um, and getting a better sense of who Jesus is and um, what he wants from us and what this life of faith, what this life as a Christian really looks like. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And Luke is uh, really artful in terms of how he's introducing us to this man and how he's leading us closer and closer to the cross and to see his glory. And here's one more story of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Let me read it and I'll kind of give you some background. It says here in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said to them all, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus told them a parable. He told them a story to illustrate his point. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, uh, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night, tonight, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God, we do pray that you would help us uh, be rich towards you. God, not only this morning, but as we live our lives, as we uh, hope to pour out our lives as an offering to you. God, I pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would encourage us and compel us um, to a transformed life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last couple of weeks... um, We took a break from our extended series on the Gospel of Luke, but we've been back in it for the last few weeks. And as we jumped in, um, we've read these stories, we've encountered these stories all related to a kind of religious hypocrisy. These stories are primarily in the context of Jesus interacting with uh, with the Pharisees and other religious leaders. The Pharisees really represent uh, the kind of fundamentalist um, religious sect among the Jews there in the first century. Really the moral majority of first century Jews and Jesus is regularly criticizing these guys. He's condemning their uh, hypocritical application of the Old Testament law and tradition. What they essentially wanted was um, they were they were well behaved. They were the religious elite. What, but what they wanted was their hearts swept up, not washed out completely. Which is what they need, and that's what Jesus condemns. He's saying, "What what you wanted you wanted to brag about the cleanliness of the outside of your cup, but the inside of your cup remained, filth, remained filthy. You're a hypocrite. What you worship is not God. What you worship is actually image. What you worship is how people perceive you. You don't worship God." Jesus says, as we've read these last few weeks, that that gospel transformation happens from the inside out. Something happens on the inside that then transforms the outside. The good news transforms our hearts in a lasting way before it transforms our habits in a lasting way. We need gospel transformation. And, And as we see in these stories that it is the gospel that not only reveals our hypocrisy, which it does, but it's also our only hope to destroy it. And so Jesus continues in this in this passage and leading up to this passage, He continues to condemn the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the religious leaders throughout the rest of uh, chapter 11. And then beginning in chapter 12, Jesus turns His attention to His disciples. And even with His disciples, as they are gathered in close, even with them, He, he, he warns them about the dangers of hypocrisy, um, but also... Again, bringing them close reminds them that they are known by God, that they are loved by God, that they are his. And even while Jesus is speaking to his disciples, um, and it says there in verse 1 of chapter 12, He's, he's literally surrounded by thousands of people who've come to hear him. So he's there in the midst of the multitude, thousands of people, Scripture says, have sort of swarmed around him. But he's got this inner circle, he's talking to his disciples, but they're right there. And a man in the crowd um, sort of shouts through the noise and asks Jesus a question. He he, He actually doesn't ask him a question, he actually makes a demand there in verse 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He doesn't even really ask him to, what, to, what he should be doing or what, how he should be thinking about this inheritance. He just gives Jesus an order and he says, Jesus, you've got to talk to my brother here. Tell him to divide his inheritance with me. And Jesus responds with a kind of rebuke, right? He says, man, who, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Take care, be on your guard against all kind of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's not unusual in this ancient world for people to uh, bring issues like these to a rabbi or to a religious leader. And so this is a pretty common interaction here. Um, but Jesus is quick to shut him down. And he essentially says, that's not why I'm here. I'm here for something else. I'm here for something more. I'm, I'm not just here to, to, to solve these small problems. I'm here to solve the big problem. And, and Jesus takes this man's comment, as he does so artfully, he takes this man's comment and turns it around on him to expose his own hypocrisy, to expose this man's own heart and his covetousness. And this command not to covet is, uh, you may remember, one of the, one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, this is one of the top 10 priorities for God's people. It says in Exodus 20, this is God speaking to Moses You shall not covet your neighbor's house, or covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that your neighbors don't covet. It's one of the top 10. And, and to covet, it's, it's not just about admiring, right? What does it mean to covet? It's not, it's not just about looking and saying, that's nice. It's about craving. It's about appetite. It's, it's cultivating a desire for the thing. It's, it's being consumed by the thing. Coveting is not just about, about a want, but a desire to possess. Anybody ever felt that? It's not that you just, you you look at it and you like it, but you have to have it. You set your heart on it. It's something you pant after. One writer in his book, uh, Toward a Culture of Freedom, he says, using others for our own purposes and desiring what they have, that's what coveting is. Not being satisfied merely to think or express a wish to have something, but actually scheming to get it. Which is exactly what... This man in the crowd is trying to do with Jesus and his comment towards Jesus. Coveting is ultimately a a misunderstanding or a distrust of God, right? I heard one preacher give the illustration something like this that, that God says, with your stuff, this is what I want for you. But our hearts that covet say, I want something more, I want something better. I want something newer. I want something else, right? Like with this man here in the story, it's saying something like I want my fair share, and I'm going to decide what my fair share is, not you. I want my fair share, I deserve my fair share, I'm entitled to my fair share, and I'm going to be the one who decides what my fair share really is. This command to covet, um, to not covet, is all, about, is all about desire, which is interesting because if you, if you read through the other uh, nine commandments in the Old Testament, the, the commandment not to covet, it separates it from all the other commandments, Right? On the surface, at least, all the other commandments are external, right? All the other commandments are about what you either do or you don't do. So you're, you're not to make a carved image to worship it. You're not, you are to keep the Sabbath. You're not to murder. You're not to commit adultery, right? All of these are external, but the 10th commandment's different. Coveting is not really about what we do, but it's about what we feel, you see how interesting that is? It's not just about what we do, it's about what we feel. It, Like Jesus' comment to this man in the crowd, it sort of turns the commandment on its head and exposes something deeper in our souls. It's not just about what we want, it's about, uh, it's about what we feel. It's not about what we do. This type of commandment actually is uh, it's unprecedented in any uh, ancient moral code or even in any modern moral code. Um, you, you, can, you can arrest someone for murdering you can punish someone for murdering how do you how do you detect how do you punish someone who covets how do you how do you punish desire it's exposing something deeper it's going deeper coveting exposes ultimately what we truly worship What are you longing for? What are you panting after? What really do you worship? In some ways, this this last command, coveting is the 10th commandment, this last command really brings us back to the first commandment, which is not to worship anything other than God. So it brings us full circle. That that we are not to bend our knee to anything other than God. That we are not to, to let our lives orbit around anything other than God. We are not to pant after anything other than God. Let me speak specifically to the, to the folks in this room, to most of the folks in this room, and in all likelihood, most of the folks who will listen to this podcast later. This should surprise, this should surprise no one. Ours is a culture of unprecedented wealth and unprecedented access um, to resources. I read this article, uh, it was actually just uh, a week or two ago, I saw it online. Uh, the article was called, uh, it, was, it was entitled, Are You Among the 1%? Meaning, are you among the world, the, the 1% uh, in terms of income with all the other inhabitants of the world? And this article is written by Daniel Kurt. It says that an annual income of $32,000, that may seem like a lot to you, that may seem like a little to you, an annual income of $30,000 puts you in the top 1% of the world. So again, think about it this way. If you're making, or if your household is making $32,000, you are richer than 99% of the world. 99%. That's shocking, right? So, so we, and when I say we, I mean those, those who are living um, in the developed West, right? So this isn't true of our Kenyan brothers and sisters that, we're, uh, that we are training even now in Kenya. We live in a culture of undeniable luxury. I mean, we live beyond what kings could dream a thousand years ago. And yet, even with this great wealth, even with this, with this unprecedented, nearly unlimited access to resources like healthcare or education, even entertainment, I mean, we have nearly unlimited options in front of us. And yet, somehow, even with that, that doesn't result in greater satisfaction. In some ways, it, it exposes even a deeper ache and a deeper need and a deeper longing for something. It, it, it doesn't result in greater satisfaction in the things that we have, but it often results in a greater sense of the things we want. It doesn't satisfy us. In his book, The Sin of Our Age, G.R. Davies says, the good life now has become inseparable from the maximum possible consumption Of all things. That's what we've equated the good life to. About our stuff. And so, in spite of our wealth, in spite of the abundance that we experience, we crave more, we pursue more, we cultivate a desire for more. We are consumed by more. Coveting is not just a want, but a desire to possess to pant after. Some of you guys have read uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Great book. Highly recommend it. Um, I feel like about every week I at least throw one or two C.S. Lewis quotes because he's just so good. But in this book, The Screwtape Letters, um, it's basically one devil talking to his nephew about how um, to sort of trip up Christians. And Screwtape starts talking about desire and starts talking about coveting. And he says, this is what you should do. You should always try to make the person abandon the people or the food or the books he really likes in favor of the best people and the right food and the most important books. Let him just keep searching for more. The goal is ever-increasing craving and ever-diminishing pleasure. Has anybody experienced that? Where our desires go up, 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 up. And yet even as we engage with those things, even if if we get the things that we think we so desperately long for, our, our pleasure, our satisfaction, our contentment goes down. This is coveting. It's a bad deal, right? It's a bad deal. It's a bad deal for me. It's a bad deal for you and a bad deal for our culture. But beyond just being a bad deal, um, coveting is so spiritually dangerous. It's dangerous. This is what Jesus is getting at. Jesus answers this question, um, why is it so spiritually dangerous in verse 15? Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his stuff. Do you know that? Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Coveting, you see, coveting confuses us. It confuses us. The danger of coveting is that we confuse stuff, right, with life. Which is exactly what the enemy would want. And yet, somehow then, we are increasingly dissatisfied with our life even when our stuff goes up. Coveting is dangerous because when you covet, you are are buying yourself a lifetime of dissatisfaction. If you have a heart that always covets, you'll never be happy. You'll never have enough. It's also dangerous because it's so deceptive, right? Right? Coveting lies to you. And that's why Jesus says, take care, be on your guard. Um, one writer says the inheritance, it was lying to this man. This, this hope and this promise, his longing for this inheritance, it was lying to this man. This is why Jesus says money is so, so hazardous. It lies to us. It tries to deceive us. This is what I need, this thing. And that's what will make me happy. That's what will make me happy feel like I matter, or that's what will make me feel like I'm successful, or like I've made the right decisions, or that I'm a smart guy, right? It's my stuff. How how else am I going to measure it? John Piper says, money says this to us, it lies to us, it says if you lose me, you will lose a very large part of your life, the most important parts of your life. Money says, if you lose me, you lose what life can be for you. Money says, I am your life. Don't you realize how big I am, says money? Life will be real life, true life, if you just have me. That's what you're missing. More of me, more stuff. And that's what this inheritance was saying to this man. In other words, don't be deceived by the message of money that woos you with the words, I will give you life. You see, that's what it's saying. I am the path to security. I am the path to joy. I am the path to your purpose. Your life will be drab and boring and empty and meaningless and unhappy if you don't have me, money says. I am your life. There are many dangers to coveting. Part of what Jesus is highlighting here is that there is no end to coveting, right? It's insatiable. It's such a bad deal, right? Jesus goes on, he says, I'm going to tell you this parable. I'm going to tell you this story to illustrate the point. There was a land of of a rich man, it produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what should I do? I have, I have nowhere to... St- it's a good problem, right? It's a good problem to have. I, have. I have so much stuff, I don't even have anywhere to put it. And so he says this. I'll do this. I'll, I'll tear down the barns that I have and I'll just build bigger barns. That's my solution. I'll build bigger barns and there I'll, I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, drink, be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. And yet God says to him, you're a fool. You're a fool. This, this very night, your soul will be required of you. And the things that you've prepared, the things that you've worked so hard for, whose will they be now? He says, so, this is the way it is. For one who lays up treasure here, but is not rich towards God. So what's going on here? And we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, next week about how, um, how coveting makes us anxious. And so we'll talk about anxiety next Sunday, God willing. But coveting lies to you about what's most important in your life and, and what will truly make you happy. It, don't you see that coveting keeps you on the hamster wheel of fear, of anxiety, of comparison, of unending toil, your work will never be enough. That's what Solomon says, the wisest man to ever live. He says, he says those who love money, if that's their pursuit, if that's the main thing, they'll never have enough. right? Because once you grab this, you want the next thing. Your, your barns will never be big enough if that's where your heart is. What this man wanted, what this fool wanted in his story is to relax and to eat and to drink and be merry. That sounds pretty good, right? What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that more and larger barns won't get you there. That if you're really after joy, more and larger barns won't get you to the place where you can actually rest, where you can enjoy what God's given you, where you can eat, drink and be merry. This man was successful by all accounts. He was an accomplished and productive farmer. He was a good businessman. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with those things per se. In fact, as you read the book of Proverbs, that often those are the things that are a sign. They can be a sign of God's favor in your life. But if, if success and wealth and stuff, if that's all you have, and if you covet more and more and bigger barns and more barns and more bigger barns, The scripture says there for this guy, I will store all, all of my grain, all of my goods, everything I possess. He's putting putting himself into this. He's even saying, my soul, my soul, right? This is is who I am. All of my stuff can be stored here. I'm going to protect it. If that's all there is for him, and he says it is. If that's all it is for you, if that's all you are or all you're living after, all you're pursuing, then in the end, we end up with nothing. And we end up with nothing forever. His whole life, his whole life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. And so in the end, Jesus says, because he was not rich towards God, even his soul was taken Even his soul was taken. The problem is not eating and drinking and being merry. In fact, Scripture encourages this exact thing. For example, in Ecclesiastes 9 go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Abundance and joy are not condemned here, they're clarified. They're clarified. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Instead, what? Be rich towards God. Be rich, what does that mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? One writer put it this way. To to be rich towards God means moving toward God as your riches. That, That your life is not a constant pursuit of more stuff, but your life is a constant pursuit of more God. He becomes your treasure. He becomes your riches. Being rich towards God means counting God as a greater treasure than anything else on earth. Being rich towards God means using our earthly riches, the blessings that God has given us, to show how much we value God, not just more stuff, not just bigger barns. This is what the prosperous farmer failed to do. And the result was that he was a fool who lost his soul. Some of you are old enough, and you've spent enough time working and investing and building up this pot, and then you're still sort of scratching your head saying, I still don't feel secure. I'm still not satisfied. I still don't feel as significant as I thought I would be. One person put it this way, this voice crying somewhere deep within us saying, I want, I want, I want, I want. It doesn't have anything to do with things. That, that ache in our souls that's saying, I want, I need, I want, I want more. It doesn't have anything to do with us coveting our neighbor's houses or our neighbor's stuff or our neighbor's wealth or our neighbor's spouse. What we covet is God. What we need desperately is God. What our souls ache for is God. What, the ultimate thing that can satisfy those desires permanently is God. The voice in our starved soul is crying, God. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, church. Church. It doesn't consist in our money. It doesn't consist in our stuff. It doesn't consist in inheritance. It doesn't consist in our success. In fact, in those those very things, in money and in success and in stuff, in inheritance, Jesus says, you better take care and you better watch out because they're dangerous. They're dangerous. They'll confuse you. They'll confuse you and make you think, this is really what life is about. And you may in your head, or you may, you know, you may never out loud say, eh, this, is, this is what my life is about. You may never admit that. But if you actually exa- examine your heart, that's what coveting does. It examines our heart. Jesus turns this around to say, look at your heart. What is your heart really saying? What is your schedule saying? What is your checkbook saying that you value most? Paul says in 1 Timothy, I should have this on the screen, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Because it is God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy. The joy was not the problem. Instead, they are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous. They should be ready to share Thus storing up for themselves a treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see the contrast there? That if our life is our stuff, if our life is our success, if our life is our money, whether you have some or don't, then you're actually missing out. You're you're not grabbing hold of that which is truly life. Jesus says himself in John 17, before he goes to the cross, he says, this is eternal life. He's praying to his father. This is eternal life, that you know God. The one true God, you know Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. Your barns will never be enough. They'll never be big enough. You'll never have enough barns. Look to Jesus this morning. There is is an ache in our souls for more, but the more is not the stuff. It's a person. Look to him this morning for your your security, for your significance, for your satisfaction. We we are called to know and to, to grow in our knowledge even more deeply of who Jesus is. To cultivate an appetite for Him. Not just for more stuff. So that we can finally enjoy. That's what it says there. That's in the Bible. He provides us everything richly for us to enjoy. This eternal life. This this eternal, this never-ending, abundant, overflowing, purposeful life. That's what He wants for us, church. Church. And he offers us himself as a solution.